So friends, if you were not with us last week, we started a new series. It's called Pleased to Dwell. It's about the incarnation. The incarnation is that very big theological term that means God with us. Basically, the incarnation is the Christmas story because it is that moment when Christ came into the world and we had that physical evidence of God being with us. But this morning, what we're doing is we're following along the story of the seed. God talks about the seed throughout the Old Testament, and that seed goes with us into the New Testament. Seed, of course, is another word for offspring. So when you see offspring in the scriptures that we study in the coming weeks, replace it with the word seed, and you'll see that seed traveling with us as we go through our history as a people and as we look forward to God with us. Would you pray with me and we'll study the word. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. I want you to consider your spine for a moment. Think about your spine. When I, when I asked the first service to do this, they said our spine is all we think about all the time. <laughs> um, but your spine, I guess apparently until you hit a certain age threshold, is not one of those parts of the body that you spend a whole lot of time thinking about until it gets out of joint. When you picture skeletons, and, and this time of year we've got all of the animated skeletons, you typically picture that big huge rib cage and the head and the arms and the fingers, but you don't give a whole lot of thought to that spine that goes down the back. Our spines are what hold us upright, they support our weight, they allow for our movements, but what our spine is most important for is that protection of our spinal cord and all of the nerves that run throughout our bodies. If the spine is not well, the rest of us does not flow well. So the scripture that we're going to study this morning is the spine of the Bible. Christ is the heart. This story is the spine of the Bible. If we skip this part, then the rest of it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's kind of like when a toddler tells you a story. Have you ever heard a three-year-old tell you a story? And you get some, but not all of the parts. And usually the parts that are missing are the parts that would actually make the story make sense. Well, this is one of those parts of the story. So we need to know the story that is the spine of the Bible if we're going to actually be able to really understand this idea of incarnation, God with us. So the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred into your father's house to a land that I will show you. I want you, as I'm reading this, to start counting the eyes. This is God talking, count those eyes. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you have all this action of what God is going to do. And typically, when, when we tell this story, which is a very common one within the Christian church, it's usually at this point when, when people start checking out on the scripture. And I think there's a good reason for that because you hear all about what God's going to do and then we're going to talk about what humanity does in response. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old, so I guess he was thinking about his spine, when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took his wife Sarah and his brother's son Lot and all the possessions they had gathered, all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram again passed through the place at Shechem, the oak at Morah, and at that time there were Canaanites in the land. Well, then we get back into the action again, because basically God spoke, God talked all about what God was going to do, then we have this, this kind of traveling space, and when he gets there, when, when he gets there, um, he, he, is meted, he is met by God again. And God appears to him and he says, to your seed, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Last week, we talked about the problem of sin. The problem of sin is launched by distrusting God's word. God spoke, Adam and Eve didn't trust it, we end up in a world of sin. The same problem is going to be solved by trusting God's word. The story of the call of Abram is very similar to Adam and Eve and that it's, that it's part of the scripture that gets told again and again and again. So much so that when people hear it, they're like, oh, I already know this one. Well, those who know the story know that typically when we, when we talk about it, we focus on the promises. We know what those promises are. There's going to be land and there's going to be progeny, offspring, and God's going to bless it. And, and that's all wonderful. And those are important things to know about this scripture. But we have to remind ourselves that beyond those promises is the promiser, the one who makes that promise. Because what good are promises if you don't believe in the one who makes them? In our political season, I think that this is a question that's very fair game for all of us right now because it's not about whose promises do you like the best. It's all about who's actually going to come through or not on the promises that they make. So take a close look at the beginning of this passage. Humanity is in a time, coming into this time, where man is out there trying to make names for themselves. And here comes God, and God says... I'm going to be the one to make Abram's name great. I'm going to be the one who is going to do this. This passage starts by looking at what God is going to do. When it shifts to Abram, that's that moment when we lose momentum because that's when we see all of the obstacles that we have as humans. And this exposes a challenge that that we as believers are going to face on a regular basis. Do we trust ourselves or do we trust God? So if I had the kids all up front, and I said, okay, do we trust ourselves or do we trust God? The kids know, we're in church. So the right answer is, we're going to trust in God. Except, adults, every day, do you trust in yourself or do you trust in God? Well, we kind of, sort of, know ourselves But what do we know about the God and the character of God that's going to lead us to trust in his promises for us? Last week, we discovered the start of a pattern that comes throughout the scriptures. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, when humanity fails, we might have thought, well, okay, God can just wipe his hands of the whole thing and start again. Instead, what happens is actually quite the opposite. We fail, God adds detail to the promises that he's going to make. God pushes in 
even when we're in the process of walking out. And this is an important pattern to observe as we look at how God's promises play out over the course of history and in our own lives. Because, see, the thing about promises, particularly as they relate to us, us being humanity, is timing. We've got a timing issue. We're very time-sensitive people. If I promise my kids that I'm going to go take them for ice cream, that clock starts ticking. And if I don't do that within 24 to 36 hours, then in their eyes, that's a broken promise. Because I said I was going to do it, and it didn't happen in a time frame that was acceptable to them. We as humans, we want those promises to be made. We want them quickly kept and fulfilled. God's promise to Abraham, his promises to humanity, take much, much, much longer than our time, human timekeeping is willing to allow. There's quite a time gap between Adam and Eve and Abram, and yet the promise is still exactly the same. God doesn't change his promises. If anything, he just expands them. In verse 7, we see that seed that we talked about last week. I want you to picture, I want you to picture a little tiny real seed, like the kind that you plant in the ground. And I want you to picture this seed getting blown on the wind, and over these hundreds of years, that seed is still going forward. That's the promise that God has sent to us. So as we go from Adam and Eve to Abram, we find out that when God says to Abram, his seed is going to be given the land. That's where we're going. The promise is the seed, the Savior. The promise that God made to Adam and Eve is promised again this time, with greater detail, because now we know where the land is. What Abram's story tells us is that God is not promising us ice cream. This is not a quick trip to Dairy Queen. This story is just as much about the promiser as it is the promise itself. So it's not about a promise given and believed and then job done, go home. It's actually quite a process. So I want you to think about your own faith and understand that it's not a one-Sunday deal. It's not a season deal. It's something that's going to go through your whole life. It contains strange failures and faithless moments because, let's face it, we're human, and we are quick to give up. So if we don't get what we want right away, our tendency, our tendency is to stop and to struggle and to not believe any further. That's why knowing who it is that makes that promise is going to be vitally important as to whether or not we're going to trust in the promise for the long haul. If you read the Old Testament, and you look at that Old Testament, and the only thing that you see in the Old Testament is a whole list of things that you, you should and should not do, then you're going to miss the whole point of the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, and the only thing that you see are promises that must be trusted— then you fall short of God's intent. If believing God's promises becomes something that is a chore, becomes work that we do, then we lose the heart of the Old Testament. God never intended for Abraham or David to do the work of believing in unseen promises. Instead, he invited them to not only trust his word, but to trust him as the promiser. Never forget that Scripture is all about relationship. It is all about God's desire to have a relationship with us. 
What we find again and again in the Old Testament is a God who is constantly moving towards us, constantly moving towards creation, ultimately to dwell in our midst. Many moons ago, I was doing my pastoral care rotation in seminary, and the first basic 101 concept of hospital visitation is that when you get to a hospital room, you make your way into the room, you do not stand at the threshold of the door. And the reason for that is that the further away that you are from a person who is sick or suffering, the more obvious it becomes that you don't really want to be there, that you're scared, that they might somehow be a burden to you. When you move closer to them, they can feel your presence, they can see your face, they can know that they are still valuable even in their compromised state. So God's approach to us is not to stand in the threshold. He comes in the room and he sits on the foot of the bed next to us. Our God is not a distant God launching these abstract truth missiles at us, hoping something hits. This is a God who chooses, who chooses to walk on two legs in the midst of his people. Go back last week to the Garden of Eden. Who was it that Adam and Eve were hiding from? And speaking too, it was God walking in the garden to meet and talk with them. When we look at today's scripture, especially verse 7, where the seed is promised again, who delivers that promise? Scripture says that the Lord appeared to Abram, the Lord himself. This is not just some random promise from some random stranger. The Lord himself appears to Abram. The Lord appears to Abram again in 17.1 and 18.1 and again in 18.22. There are no less than seven times just in the book of Genesis where God shows up with the people. When we are asked to trust in God's promises, we're invited not just to the work of, tr- of trusting, but the privilege of trusting in response to a personal God, a God that we know and a God who knows us. So since we're talking about privilege, let me ask you, have any of you ever had the privilege of buying a car? Right? It's an event. It's one of those experiences. It's almost as awesome as like a root canal, breaking every bone in your body, voting in the upcoming election. First time I bought my own car. First first time I bought my own car, the one that I was responsible for and had to make the payments on, I was 26 years old. I was married. I had just had Anna a few months earlier. I walked into the dealership, and you you just looked at me, and you just saw Target right there. You just just knew. You knew that this was going to be an easy sale. I sort of knew what I wanted. I had done some minimal research. Having just had my first child, not knowing better, I was thinking like army tank. That's what I wanted to protect her. And the salesman walked up to me, just gleam in his eye the way a fisherman looks at that tank at Bass Pro Shop and knows that this is going to be a super, super easy catch. So I explained what I was looking for. My intent was to purchase an SUV, and immediately the salesman told me that a much better idea for my current situation was a minivan. And I was super not impressed with that idea. But on the other hand, I was kind of drawn to this idea of the automatic sliding door. So then he went on, and he rambled on and on about things like gas mileage and safety reports and child 
restraints. I mean, all kinds of stuff that I just thought was ridiculous. And then he said something about future kids as if that was actually going to happen. And so before long, I am test driving the minivan. And I had, I had to admit that it was not exactly what I had in mind, but it did make a whole lot of sense. So when we came back to the dealership, I was sold. And that's where things get really interesting. Isn't that where it always gets interesting when you buy a car? Because now they've got you. Now we're just going to talk about price. And the first thing that the sales guy did was that he wanted to sell me on leather seats because, you know, that ups the price of the car. And I thought that was really sneaky. Let's just add to that cost, I thought. But you know what? That's because I'd never had kids before. And I had no idea the amount of damage that they are capable of causing in vehicle seating. So actually, the leather seats made sense. Well, then he said something about car mats and liners. And all I could see was just dollar signs, just going up and up and up. Just keep driving up that cost. Well, as it happens, little kids spill things at, at the best and then vomit all over the place at the worst. <laughs> So actually, that wasn't a really bad idea. So then I decided that I was just going to outsmart the sales guy, and I said, okay, well, listen, since we're going to do all these other things, I'm going to take mine with just a radio. I don't, I don't need a CD player. This, remember, we're going back 15 years. That's when they still had CD players in cars. All right, so I told him that I didn't need anything fancy, and he said, yes, you do. And now I was kind of getting angry, and I said, I do not need a CD player in the car. And he said, trust me, you do. Well, who trusts a car salesman? <laughs> so finally, seeing that I was not about to be taken, he showed me the pricing on the vehicle with the CD player, which turned out to be standard. And then he showed me the pricing without the CD player, then making it custom, where we now had a $2,000 difference in favor of the CD player. So when all was said and done, I walked out of the dealership with a minivan that I would drive for the next 11 years, almost 200,000 miles, all three kids. But I got to tell you something very important about this story. I didn't buy that car because I trusted the car or because I trusted the statistics. I bought that car because that salesman was my own father. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It was my, it was my dad. And, and my dad had a 26-year history of making decisions and helping me make decisions that were faithful and we're safe, and we're helpful. Now, I didn't know, I, I had no idea on the day that I left that, that lot, that that minivan, how long it would last, or how safe it would be, how reliable it was. That, that would show itself over time. On the day that I drove it home, it wasn't the promise of the new car that I was trusting. It was my own dad who made that promise that I was trusting in. When God told Adam and Eve, when God told Abram that there would be this seed and that the seed would alter the course of history and save the world, they didn't know much about that promise. They didn't know how long that promise was going to last. They didn't know how long that promise would take to be fulfilled. But what they did know is the one who made the promise, 
who consistently, persistently showed himself to be faithful and relational. As you start walking through your faith, understand that before you can truly, truly accept and believe in the promises of God, you've got to know the one who makes those promises. Start looking around you for a God who crosses the threshold, who comes close to you, who wants to be where you are, who is interested in what you're doing, and who loves you, even when you haven't figured all of the rest of it out just yet. Start there. Know who makes the promises so that then you can fully trust in them. Let's pray together. Holy God, we, we confess that sometimes we're so focused on the promises that we forget the one who makes them. And you have always been faithful to your people. It takes a while sometimes, longer than, than we might like. But throughout the course of history, again and again and again, you push in. You are faithful to us and to your people. So help us to know you, to trust in you, so that then we can fully begin to trust in your promises. In your name we pray. Amen.